welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode, we talk with Zeke Leonard, a Syracuse, New York-based educator, musician, and maker. Zeke started out early getting involved with community theater while growing up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. His interest in acting and set design and construction led him to a degree in set design at the North Carolina School of the Arts. Zeke moved to New York City to follow the dream of a career as a theatrical set designer, where he eventually became disillusioned with all the waste created by the making of beautiful things. His realization that a whole pallet of plywood ultimately ended up in the trash bin at the end of each season dramatically shifted Zeke's mindset. Following his love of making things by hand and building functional objects, Zeke pursued an MFA in furniture design at the Rhode Island School of Design and worked as a furniture maker in New York City co-op studios until the financial crash of 2008. Zeke now finds his life as an educator in the School of Design at Syracuse University and playing music on his homemade instruments brings him the happiness and community and family he has been searching for. We are all music lovers here at Make, and we started this conversation with Zeke by trading funny stories about late-night encounters at the Galax Fiddlers Convention in Galax, Virginia, years ago. And the tail end of one of those tall tales is a wonderful beginning for our conversation with Zeke Leonard. There was definitely a night that I was about to turn in and this dude was walking around saying, anyone want to jam? Anyone want to jam? He was carrying a guitar neck that had strings on it that was not attached to a body at all. God only knows what had happened to the body, but the strings were flapping around. He was trying to find someone to jam with. I did not take him up on that, but I, I've, and I've regretted that because I would love to know how that would have turned out for him. You know, That is a great note to welcome Zeke Leonard to the Why Make podcast. Welcome, Zeke. Happy to be here. So the way we start these things is with the Why Make question, which is what is your first memory of making something? Yeah, and I, you know, as I've listened to all of these episodes, I've uh, and heard everybody's answer. It's such an interesting question to start with. Uh, so I'm going to take that. I'm going to answer that in the sense of starting with the raw material and applying imagination in a transformative way. So I'm going to define making in that way. And so the first thing that I remember, I, I have an actual memory of making, is that when I was growing up when I was very young, before I was four years old, we lived on uh, Smith Street in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. And in our backyard, there's this giant wisteria bush. And it probably wasn't actually that giant, but I was not yet four years old. So to me, it was the size of a house, right? And, uh, and it had these beautiful flowers that hang down kind of in bunches. And uh, my friend Jenny McGinnis God only knows where she is. I haven't seen her since I was four, but we were fast friends when I was very young. Uh, she and I were underneath there and we had seen a, I think a Looney Tunes cartoon or something of somebody eating grapes off of the bunch by dangling it over their head and sort of showing. So we took these bunches of wisteria blossoms and pretended that they were grapes. And so that's the, the first th- time that I have a memory of using imagination to transform something. I don't know if that actually counts as making. Um, it's making play, I guess. In that same house, I have, we have pictures of, though I don't have memories of me doing it, but, um, my dad made a lot of our furniture. And so we have pictures of me at like age three with a sanding block in hand, sanding the bed that he made me when I outgrew my crib. So that probably is the more like technically, you know, maybe technical answer. Well, actually, I think the wonderful thing is, is that, and the reason I love making as a term is that it is necessarily vague. You know, one of the wonderful parts about doing our our project with Tommy Simpson, our documentary with Tommy was, is that uh, Tommy sort of believes in making and creativity are just these two things that are hopelessly intertwined and therefore using your imagination to make anything is is a part of the whole field of making so absolutely and i think that i would i would blow that out beyond you know physical objects i would blow that beyond food i'd open that up to making 
relationships, making communities. Music and like anything that you could, anything that took creativity to, and I mean, that's a, there's a broad definition for creativity too. So it really could Absolutely. be. Absolutely. And intention, I think, mm -hmm. which is the other, the other important uh, element in that recipe. Yeah. You know, everybody, everybody that I have hung with over the years, um, I used to, I did a couple of projects with this dance company in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And, um, I, I didn't really identify as a dancer, but one of the dancers that I was working with, Cassie Metter said, uh, you know, I think that dance is any thoughtful movement. And I, and that really struck me because, um, Philip Glass said that music is any thoughtful noisemaking. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, I mean, I, and I teach drawing, right? And I think that drawing is any thoughtful mark making. As long as you're being thoughtful about what you're doing, you are by definition being a, you know, fill in the blank, a dancer, artist, musician, woodworker, chef, you know, family member, whatever, right? Thoughtful also includes intention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm using those words. I mean, you had said intention. I'm using that, those words kind of interchangeably, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That you're, you're doing it on purpose. You're doing that thing on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to just kind of flailing your arms around in space, but you're saying, Oh, no, I want to, I want to, I have a reason that I'm engaging this act, whatever that is. Right. I think that's like, like people don't understand things like, for example, John Cage and, the, the noise making that he did and the songwriting that he did because people didn't see something that they recognized, even though there was this thoughtful intention behind it on his part, you know, people, I think it just scared people. Well, and I think that we've, it's really important to divorce the idea of liking something from whether or not it's, it is um, successful in its intention, right? There's a ton of art out there that I do not like. Oh, right. Oh, here, here. Um, <laughs> but, but that doesn't make it not art. That just means no. I don't like it. Right. Like yeah. my personal experience is not universal experience. No. And if it was thoughtfully created, then I have to, as a baseline, I have to acknowledge that that is art. Right. Yeah. And it also gives you no right or me or Eric, you know, to say if we don't like something that it's not as good as this other thing or this other thing. It's just, you know, w what our minds I see is not what somebody else's does or, you know, our likes are always going to be different. That, that's what I love about the massive amount of stuff in this world. It's like you can figure out what you like and what you don't like. And and that'll shift over time, too. Right. Oh, like that'll, yeah. um, you know, as I age, I'm finding that I have more patience for some things than for others, you know. But isn't um, it funny looking like, for example, at your Spotify playlist for the Furniture Society that you gave us? how you also go back to what you liked when you were, you know, in high school and college. Cause that's what you, you've got music on there that I know you listened to when you were a kid. Oh yeah. And you know, the, the, the punk rock and the Ani DeFranco and all that stuff. That's like, that's nineties, man. That's, that's Zeke when he was figuring out what he liked. Yeah. And, and there are some definite through lines, right? Like I've, I've always been drawn to activism and, you know, the way that Pete Seeger is an activist and the way that Henry Rollins is an activist might look really different in the record store because they're trying to market the albums to different people. They're both musicians and they're both activists. And to me, that puts them in the same category, right? Those records sit on the same shelf. They are. They're genuinely, I mean, it's coming from the same thing in their heart and in their soul, the, the yeah. activism that they both. Advocate. Right. And I think the other valuable thing of that experience is, is that, especially for me doing this podcast is this podcast isn't solely about artists we like. If it was solely about artists we like, there'd probably be, at least for me, there'd only be a handful of people we'd have discussions with. And I actually find it just as challenging to talk with people whose work I don't like as much. And it really helps. I think it's another part of the making creative process. It was like, well, why don't you like their work? Yeah. And you really challenge yourself on on who they are as a maker and their identity. It's okay not to like their work, but on the other hand, you have to understand why you don't like their work. It's I think it's a whole part of the unnecessarily <laughs> uh, experience in the United States called critical thinking that doesn't exist. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's dying. Well, I say this to my students a lot is that 
Um, you know, regular people are allowed to like stuff or not like stuff. We're not, right? We're allowed to understand, understand a successful outcome of an original intention and then judge things based on that. But it's, it's, I, I feel like it's a little, if you're in a creative field, if you're a creative person, it's a little bit of a cheat to just say, ah, I don't like that and walk away. To your point, you want to say, I don't like that. What is it about that that's not doing it for me? And, and what do I, what does that mean to me in my life as a, you know, thoughtful, critical thinker? Right. I mean, before we get into other things, I mean, this is a, I think it's a perfect opportunity to segue into the relationship between making and teaching, which I think also, for me, the little I've taught, and you are a professional educator at uh, Syracuse University in the design department, um, it helps to really enforce those ideas in me that I relish when I get to teach them. And therefore, it makes me a better maker to teach. What's your relationship between making and teaching? Well, so the I teach a lot of skills classes. Um, you mentioned so, draw, drawing is one. Yeah, drawing. I do um, my furniture design class is as much a skills class as a furniture design class, as a design class. Um, I teach the drafting class. So I'm teaching a lot of people every year I'm teaching people how to do stuff that they haven't necessarily done before. And what's beautiful about that is it forces me to distill down into very clear statements, the things that I fundamentally believe are important and which I wouldn't necessarily otherwise do. You know, I would, I would, I kind of move through the world and we all have in our head, these library shelves of experience and we don't necessarily have to think that hard about why we're running that piece of wood through the planer uh, we just kind of know that's the next step in order to get to where we're going. But if you're talking to a 20-year-old who's never even seen a planer, let alone run a piece of material through it, you've got to be really, you've got to be able to be really articulate, really clear about why that's a thing you would do, you know? And so that relationship between the teaching and the making is that the teaching for me is, is the kind of checks and balances on the making. And it keeps me from getting too sidetracked in the making because I, I, I'm, I've had to, I've been forced to over the last 20 years really distill everything that I think down to really, you know, clear, understandable kind of bite-sized pieces. Um, I didn't really, I don't really have a choice about being a teacher. I'm, I come from a long line of educators. So like this is <laughs> the family business in a lot of ways and I yeah. didn't, I was never going to escape it. Uh, but I also think, especially in a world that is increasingly digital, a world in which the, the majority of experiences for many people, not all people, is one that is that exists in the in a, a place in which you can't like lift things up and feel how heavy they are. Um, as as we move farther into that, all of us who are makers of objects become kind of de facto educators anyway, right? Because it's our job, it's our kind of mission, if you take it that way, to remind or to be the the um the sound of the clarion call of the tactile so i I guess in a sense you're saying that we owe a responsibility back to the craft or to the world of making to sort of mentor other people is that what you're saying and yeah but i think even if even if we don't choose to to intentionally mentor like okay young person come here into my shop and I, i mean i do that as well but even if we don't do that the things that we make become that become the tool of mentorship right like you make a fly swatter i'm going to buy a fly swatter from you instead of a 2.99 one from amazon the act of that or the 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 reality of that fly swatter in the world that you've made talks about talks to its owner about the fact that a a real person actually made that yeah. right and so that so the object itself becomes the teacher mm-hmm. in a way Right. So some, some of us choose to be mentors on purpose, like in, yeah, in person yeah. mentors, and some of us choose to be mentors through the object. And I think both of those have value. No, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Act, literally by making the object, I'm thinking about like my meditation chair. By making them and people seeing them and commenting on them, they're learning enough to be able to make a comment about them, to form an opinion on them. And then some people actually buy the things. That's even more of an intended learning about 
what I've put out there. So yeah, it is. I mean, that, that's a really interesting way to look at making. And even if you take something more prosaic, like say you're having your kitchen redone, right? Like say you're, you're you don't have any history of making. I have friends that just don't make anything at all, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, but they get their kitchen redone, and they see a couple of people come in, and they've got all the boxes, and they level up the boxes, and they go through the whole thing of getting the boxes in. Even that is an educational event mm-hmm. for the for the client, right? And and it's not as highfalutin as the kind of one of a kind junk that I make, but but it is this idea that people with their hands and their heads made this thing out of raw material. We're so divorced in our lives, many of us, from that from the reality of that. That anytime we have to kind of brush up against it, I think it's educational. I think it's important. You said you you ended up spending most of your formative years in North Carolina, and then so talk about a little bit of that. When we moved to Winston Salem, like we didn't have any money, and so Dad made all of our furniture. I think if I if you asked him now, hey, are you a furniture maker? I'm pretty sure he'd say no, I'm not. Um, but he made like all of our furniture in the house, just out of plywood and one by sixes. It wasn't you know not I make furniture very differently, using very different methods and materials than he did. Um, but then my mom was also, you know, coming out of the hippie movement and was always doing batik or uh, tie-dyeing or macrame. She did all kinds. She's a potter, you know, like she did all kinds of craft stuff. So I just kind of grew up surrounded by this idea of, you know, you know, make what you can, borrow what you can't make and buy what you can't borrow, right? Like that was because we just didn't have any money. Um, and And so I grew up, I mean, I have this really distinct memory in the rented house in Winston-Salem, so I must have been like five or six. Dad, we were down in the basement. Dad was making something, and I and I said, Dad, will you make me something? And he said, well, I just made you that whole pile of sawdust. Why don't you play with that? And that and I did. Like, I have a memory of sitting there and playing with the sawdust and making little piles and moving it around, right? So um, so that's kind of where I'm coming at this from. And what, But where that led was that, – so then we moved outside of town, and then I was in the middle of the woods, and my folks only had a couple acres, but it backed up on kind of endless woods for days, right? And so that was – it was all my early – you know, my, I don't know, my kind of elementary, middle, high school was all just kind of going out in the woods and, you know, walking across the trees that fell across the creek or uh, a lot of digging, like digging into the side of a hill to make a little cave or, uh, you know, making tree hut fort things. I'd never, you know, I'd never heard of Andy Goldsworthy or Patrick Dougherty, but like, you know, all of that kind of stuff, the kids stuff, the kids, kids do in the woods, right. Just I was out in the woods. Um, and I was, so I have my next sibling is four years younger and the sibling after that is 10 years younger than me. So by the time I was able to kind of take care of myself and show up at dinner time, my folks were like, all right, yeah, go. I got an infant here. I got to deal with fine. Go out in the woods, see at dinner. And so that's when I started to really make stuff. And it's funny now going into my dad's, you know, my dad has a craftsman workbench, the kind of metal, the folded metal with the MDF top, you know, the mm-hmm. pegboard above, which when I was a kid was, that was just this the explosion of potentiality. You could make anything as far as I was, was concerned, anything in the world. And then my mom had all of the other art supplies you could possibly imagine paints and markers and stuff. Sure. But you know, she saved every bottle cap. She saved every uh, egg container and styrofoam tray that the meat came in and all of that stuff. And so like we would, if you were bored, you'd go and get some styrofoam trays that meat came in and you'd take a ballpoint pen and you'd draw a painting on that or draw a drawing on that and then roll paint on that and put a piece of typing paper on it and make monoprints off of it. Right. Uh, she used to take the paper egg crates that came from the store and if it was rainy and we couldn't go outside, we'd, uh, she had these screens that she had made and we would put the egg crates and water in a blender and blend them up and then make our own paper, you know, by pulling that and putting it. So, I mean, this was my childhood. It was this, this constant making of, right, making anything. And, and actually, I just looked this up because I imagine I'm probably about your father's age. I'm 61. And there was a classic book that came out in the early 70s called Nomadic Furniture. Oh, that's a great book. And that book is probably what your father saw. And the plywood and 2x4 and 2x6 furniture all came from that. And it was a very important piece of work in the early do-it-yourself 
furniture movement. It was a classic. It was the first book somebody gave to me when I built my first piece of furniture in college. And uh, it's an important piece of the history and the footnote of the early movement of making, just as a historical aside. We had that. Um, you know, with that, we had the Whole Earth Catalog. We had all the Foxfire books, you know, all of that kind of 70s hippie back to the land, um, which is, you know, interestingly now the folks who are a lot of the folks who are into that are the, like the preppers, right? And so, which is this whole other way of spinning that same idea of you know, how do we take care of ourselves? My dad's actually, uh, he is 78. So he's out ahead of you a little bit, but I, I think that you two might have been kind of discovering a lot of that stuff at the same time. Let's go back to you going to the North Carolina School for the Arts, which is where you end up going to college and majoring in, in set design and theater. Yeah. So I, in middle school, started doing, so, you know, and Winston-Salem was, a, was has been a really interesting town for a long time. It's post-industrial, right? Um, lot used to be a lot of, RJR was there, but Westinghouse had a huge um, facility there. But anyway, so it was post-industrial. Um, but even in high school, even when I was in high school, there was this really robust community theater. There were three professional theater groups. There was a professional opera, a professional um, uh, symphony. There were two professional dance groups in this little town of, at the time, like 150,000. But so in, in middle school, I started taking after school acting classes at this, uh, at the community theater and sort of fell, liked the idea of acting, but I don't have the mental capacity to memorize lines, but found theater as a way to, uh, to meet my never ending Jones for making stuff. Because every show, you're making a whole bunch of new things, most of which, many of which have never existed in the world before, right? Because you're doing Romeo and Juliet on a spaceship, and so you need a, you know, whatever. You need the court jester's, you know, scepter on a spaceship for Romeo, or whatever it is. So so I fell into that community theater, and we did like 10 shows a year. And we did, so, you know, and they had a, they had a real budget, and so... They had, you know, a staff of maybe 15 people, technical director, assistant technical director, you know, um, and this really robust, uh, volunteer pool of just hundreds of people. And so that was where, that was then where I learned to use a table saw, a chop saw, a band saw, you know, because they had a, they had a full shop. They had a full on scene shop. And, you know, we had crew calls on Monday and Wednesday nights, and then we would go into show and in show you'd be down there every night for two weeks. And, um, and it just, it just changed my life because it was this really welcoming group of people. They were all there because they love to make stuff. Um, they were from all walks of life. Bill Beetle, that's where I met Bill Beetle. He, the, the guy with grinding the turbine blades for Westinghouse. Um, George Mick McCandless, also dead now. He was, uh, he was actually in the Marines in World War II, you know, and I got to hear those stories. That was pretty wild. That's why I have, that's why I have this, um, anchor tattooed on my forearm because he had a Marine Corps insignia tattooed on his forearm. Uh, but then also, you know, all of these people who were local artists who came to paint or, uh, you know, or who worked at North Carolina School of the Arts. And so they would moonlight there designing shows. And, uh, and so it was this, it was this perfect intersection of intense creative energy around making things and intense, um, kind of artistic energy in terms of, um, making things that met some kind of artistic criteria, right? And theater is hands down the best, I think, the best education anyone can have because more than anything else, it's a group of people working together towards an end goal. And everybody brings, it's, I mean, it's socialism at its best, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? It is the costume people, we trust you to do the costumes and to do them well. The prop people, we trust you to do the props and do them well. And we're all going to coalesce around this thing. And, you know, I've never hired a contractor that got done when they said they were going to be done. But God help you if that curtain didn't go up on a show opening night, right? Uh, we, <laughs> you know, so working to a deadline, working together. Um, and I was just was 
And so, and I became very close. And, you know, many of those people I called mom and dad. They, these were people who were an age range from 10 years older than me to 40 years older than me. And in a lot of ways, a lot of important ways they raised me and I would listen to them. And I, instead of listening to my folks, which is not something that I suggest or think is a good idea, but that's kind of how I was as a teenager, you know. Um, and when my grades dipped, they said, you can't come back to the theater until your grades go up. You know, my folks were yelling at me, meh, meh, meh. But, um, and I wasn't listening to that, but I listened to Bill Beadle. He drove me home one night after, you know, I was still too young to drive. And he told, drove me home after a shop call and said, I heard about your report card. I'm not giving you another ride until your grades are up. And it was the only three month period of my, of my life that I didn't do theater at all because they wouldn't let me back in until my grades were up in the next quarter. So they really, they really turned me around. It was really, um, it was such a, an amazing time. And so then I, I followed, uh, Terry Beadle, Tesco, Terry Beadle, uh, who was the technical director, went to UNCG, University of North Carolina Greensboro, did theater there. I did that for a couple of years, but I kind of wasn't very good at being in college. And, uh, and, I, and UNCG didn't really meet me. I mean, not that it's UNCG's job to meet me, but like what they were doing wasn't kind of where I was living. So I did that a couple of years and that didn't go too well. But then I applied to School of the Arts and I got in there and I went over there for set design. And um, what a what an amazing, crazy, intense, weird time. Um, and UNC and uh, School of the Arts, North Carolina School of the Arts is a, for those who don't know, is a performing arts conservatory within the North Carolina, the University of North Carolina system. So it's a state school, uh, but it's all it's only performing arts. So music, drama, dance. Film now. The film program started when I was there. And then what's called design and production. So that's set design, lighting design, costume design, sound design, properties, costume technology, um, stage management. So that's who I went to school with. And then, um, and the expectation was kind of you were going to go off and kind of do that. So, uh, I moved to New York City after that. Uh, most of us moved either to New York City or Chicago. But also that was right when Las Vegas was blowing up. So a lot of my friends moved to Las Vegas to work on all the motion control and like weird big shows out there. So the big pirate ship, I have people I've graduated with went and worked on the big pirate ship show and some of that other stuff, you know. Um, so, and, you know, and, and it's a, it's a very different kind of making for than what I do now. We used to joke that theater is where you, uh, paint wood to look like wood and then you take it on a bright sunny day into a large windowless room where you artificially recreate a bright sunny day to put that wood in right i mean the whole thing the artifice of the whole thing is just very strange but um but it gave me all these great skills it gave me all these skills about thinking quickly on my feet and decision making and owning it when i got it wrong you know because you know if you you're not going to step up and say, yeah, I can rig that over that person's head if you're not sure that it's not going to fall on their head, right? So like understanding limitations, but also understanding mentorship and accepting that. I've only done one set. It was a it was a one-time production called Are We Home Yet, which was actually a series of short plays and poems and, and skits on the, the large co-op community I lived in Morgantown. And there was probably... 50 people involved with it and I had to build all the sets because I was living in North Carolina so I had to not only visualize how to build the sets I had to take them up in my teeny little Mazda GLC um, with a roof rack on it but it was an interesting process in problem solving because I had to think well what is this what is this because we had to create I mean it wasn't like I knew there was a pirate ship I knew that the theme of the show was are we home yet and along with other directors and the producers, we decided that we were going to basically make a series of doors and then project a triangle, which was basically the roof on top of it. And it was just a real, it was a wonderful experience in problem solving, doing something quick and cheap because we had zero budget. And uh, I'd love to do it again. It's also a really... It- really made me at an early age develop the idea of conceptual interpretation, which I wasn't very good at for most of the time I was in theater. But now that I'm not and I'm doing other stuff, I find that I'm able to be a lot clearer about what it means to interpret a concept because you have to, because as you say, you're not going to 
you're not going to put an actual house on stage. You're putting an artistic interpretation of what a house, of what house means, right? Which could be a bunch of doors and a projected roof. It could be just a rectangle. It could be, you know, making the entire thing astroturf except for a rectangle, you know, like whatever it is that it is, it makes mm-hmm. you really get into this. It, it really makes you exercise that idea about, about well, how do I, how do I evoke rather than necessarily show, you know? Um, and so, so that was, so I moved to, from there in New York City, lived in New York for 10 years, went to New York City with all of the most incorrect intentions that a person could have, right? I wanted, all I wanted was to be famous. I wanted to have a Tony Award by the time I was 30. I, that's, that's what I was in the, in the business for. And ultimately that's what made me get so disillusioned by it is that I went, I, I wasn't doing it because I loved to do it. I mean, I did love to do it, but I was trying to, I was trying to move to New York to be rich and famous. And, as long as you're chasing that, you're never going to be anything but unhappy, you know. Um, but I lived in New York for 10 years and I did theater. I did a lot of theater based out of New York, kind of up and down the East Coast and a little bit of stuff on the West Coast. Did some, you know, opera and, and some uh, like styling newspaper ads and stuff like that. Kind of whatever I could get, whatever work came in the door. But never, yeah, as I say, never with the right intentions. It's Okay. And then, uh, you know, those people flew those planes into the buildings and suddenly the world stopped. And, you know, so summer of 2001, I had 10 shows lined up between that summer and the next summer. And uh, September 13th of 2001, I had zero shows lined up because no one knew what was going on. And um, and we really hadn't had – there have been interesting parallels between the pandemic and that time for me because – the pandemic, a lot of folks that I've known for 25 years have been in the entertainment industry for 25 years were suddenly out of work for the first time in their entire lives. And, and like had no way to, they were just, they, I mean, you know, my friend Brian is also a woodworker actually lives in New Jersey. Um, but he's on the, he's mo- he runs motion control for Book of Mormon and, you know, just suddenly there was no job to go to. Um, and so it was, it's been interesting to hear their stories, their experiences during the pandemic, but it was very similar in 2001. And so that's what made me get a job at this place called uh, showman fabricators that builds scenery and they build like Broadway shows. We used to do the Macy. We did the Macy's Christmas windows every year for a few years. Uh, we did a lot of TV studios. We did like ESPN sports center and the CNN times square. So we built scenery instead of designing it, which was also a really important time for me because that was when I really, I mean, I was in the design and engineering office, and so I was getting the designer's drawings and then interpreting those and sending them to the floor. And so that was when I that was when I learned a lot about structure, attachments, you know, um, but also communication. Right? How do I draw this so that somebody on the floor who hasn't seen the designer drawing knows what it's supposed to be and how it goes together and can make it look right? Um, and that was. And that's when I got really, and we, that was all AutoCAD work, you know. I mean, I was still drawing my own scenery by hand, but because uh, I was still moonlighting doing stuff. But um, that was all AutoCAD, and uh, you know, just the beginnings of 3D AutoCAD work. So uh, our computers crashed a lot. We did the fin- we did the finale for the first season of Survivor. We did we built the scenery for that, and it was this big thing in Central Park that we tried to draw in 3D, and. Uh, we got to where we couldn't even open the program because it would just crash instantly because it was so huge. Um, so I did that for a few years. Then I went to work at NYU running three of their theaters and building their scenery. Did that for a few years. And then I just, and then something inside me broke, right? Because when I was working at NYU, um, I bought a, I used to buy plywood by the pallet. And I realized after two semesters, I had gone through an entire pallet of plywood, which is 75 sheets, you know, it's like a four foot high stack of plywood and it all gone in the dumpster, every scrap of it. Right. Because it's scenery, because it's temporary. Um, and, and, you know, I plywood and Luon and latex paint and foam, foam for days, two inch insulation foam to carve, you know, all went in the dumpster. And I had this moment of, of, uh, thinking, holy crap, all I do is make beautiful trash. Everything I had done in my creative life since 1987, everything had gone in the trash. 
Um, and so I had this real kind of like existential crisis of, I got to stop doing that. I, I need to stop being, I mean, I'm complicit in the waste stream in a ton of ways that are really bad. And I drive a car and I eat shrimp and my groceries are wrapped in plastic and there's all kinds of terrible things that I do. But at the very least, my creative practice maybe should go in a different direction. Right. And in the middle of this existential crisis, I looked across the room and there's this chair that's a nothing little 1880s slipper chair. Like it's a, if you bought it at an antique store, it'd be $25. Except that I have a picture of my great grandfather in it, a picture of my grandfather in it, and a picture of my dad in it. And it's in my house now and my kids sit in it. And so in my brain, that chair became the, other end of the spectrum from the theater industrial complex, you know, and I don't, and I'm into performance. I dig performance. I think the performative act is really important. I think it's, I think performative art is one of the ways that, that we comment on and understand the human condition. I'm not saying we shouldn't do theater. I do think that the entertainment industrial complex has problems. And I think we need to rethink the way we do that level of theater. Um, I mean, it's not so different, though, than the, than the rest of society and the way we... <laughs> it's just a slice of yeah, it, Yeah, really. it's just, I mean, the whole notion of, I mean, because this sort of uh, plays into, uh, I mean, one of the things you talk about a fair amount, which is the cradle-to-cradle -cradle, um, use of materials as opposed to the cradle-to-grave. You know, we ultimately believe in, in the disposable object, and, uh, and we also believe in new. I mean, those are two yep. big concepts. And and those were created. So one of the things I have my students read, and I, I definitely recommend that everybody read um, Francis Packard's The Wastemakers. It's a, it, he was a, Packard was a, I'm sorry, Vance Packard, not Francis. Vance Packard's The Wastemakers. It's a, he was an economist, but he's the person that coined the term planned obsolescence. And he wrote this book in 1960, 1960. And you read it today and it reads like it was written today. And so this idea of convenience over conscience, this idea of the instantly disposable, this idea of new, 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 this is created. You know, we have, this is a construct, a value construct that we culturally have created for ourselves. Um, and I, I will get off of my soapbox now because that's not what this podcast is about. But I will say that um, one of the, among the reasons it's so important to me as an educator to teach young people to make physical things is first of all, that physical things are stickier, right? Something you've made is stickier in your life. You're a little less likely to throw it away than something you buy. But also if we understand, when we understand that we can change our physical world, it's a very short leap to understanding we can change our social world, our economic world, our political world. We can change, we can event, we can enact change. Um, I will now get off my soapbox and rant. Well, enact change with our hands, with our literally, hands. By, by making things. And with our hands and with creativity, right? Like that's how we make change. We, what we do, the two of you and me and the people who listen to this podcast, our whole job, uh, the way we move through the world is we vision the world that we want to live in, and then we make that. And I would right? say an important element of that is an element of that is uh, I'm going to bring up that word intent again because we've we've talked with a lot of makers who have specifically said you really have to think about the objects you make. Do they do they need to exist in the world? I mean, make those objects with the intent not only of doing what you want to express creativity in a creative sense, but does the world need that object? Does the world need yeah. another stool? Does the world, I mean, and I think that again can be looked at in a much more global sense in terms of let's create the objects in our society with intent. Do we need another this? Do we need another that? And, and where is it going to, and who are we making it for, I think, is equally important, mm -hmm. right? That um, I mean, do I in my life need another ukulele? No, I don't. I have lots, right? And, and you know, like all of these ukes I make, I call them my scrap pile ukes because literally they come out of the scrap pile, right? So, like, I'll take a – a friend of mine gave me these cherry kitchen cabinet doors, and I can get one uke out of one cherry kitchen cabinet door, you know? 
Um, that it's, that it is. So yeah, why am I making it? What am I making it out of? And where did that come from? And then where is it going? Who's it going to? Right. And that was kind of one of the things post grad school. I had a, I kind of had my own little furniture business for a very short period of time, right before the bankers totally destroyed the American economy. And suddenly no one wanted a $3,000 dining table. Um, but having to make that shift also got me really thinking about like, what, how many, what does it mean in this world to make a $3,000 dining table as opposed to anything else? Right. So let's just uh, actually just go back for a second and get the timeline. So you're in the theater world in New York. Um, you have this, let's call it epiphany about uh, the disposable nature of the theater world. And then you have your grandfather's chair and that causes the wheels to continue to turn. You then go to graduate school at some point at, to, uh, to the Rhode Island School of Design. Yeah, that was the impetus to apply to grad school was that I wanted to make objects of long-term value. Right. And I, I mean, you know, as I, I grew up around furniture that people had, that people I knew had made, I grew up around making. So my way into objects of long-term value happened to be furniture. Also, I have this, I have this kind of love-hate relationship with function, right? I mean, I, I, I want what I make to have a function, but I also think Function is, has a very broad, I have a very broad definition of function. I think the Mona Lisa has a function, right? So I think function, a lot of things can have function. She has currently been functioning as a cake plate. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you, if you've seen that recently. I did. <laughs> Sorry, I, did. I had to interject. But, but I mean, I would argue that that is a, that's, she's in that moment, she was even more, she was even more functional than she had been for the last couple hundred years. Right. Right. Like, Cause that, I don't know, Eric, I, Eric, I don't know if you caught that, but somebody smeared cake on the Mona Lisa. A couple oh, days ago. oh, oh, okay. Yeah. And what, and what I love is that the, the security guards saw that cat go in there with the cake and thought, yeah, that's okay. Right. Like, <laughs> how do you get cake into the Louvre? Who lets it's you bring cake art. into the Louvre? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a man with intention right there. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to make a statement with you vandalize it, but you don't destroy it. I'm sure the conservators probably got the cake off pretty easily, as opposed to somebody that went at it with a knife and actually destroyed it. You make the statement. So I yeah, have gasoline to, and a lighter. Yeah. yeah. I have right. to give I have to give the artist and maker who made that statement props. Because absolutely, I, I think they. I do believe the whole goal was co- climate change, correct, or something vaguely associated with that. Uh, although I don't I, remember, I I don't remember what the intention was behind it. But um, there's a similar. Uh, I don't know if you know Ai Weiwei as yes. a oh, Chinese yeah. artist. Yeah, yeah, but the piece he did where he dropped the, he shattered the, whatever Ming Dynasty vase. Yeah. So I hope that, and I'm going to call him an artist. The artist that put the cake on the Mona Lisa doesn't get too harshly uh, penalized because uh, I'm, I'm going to give him a I'm going to give him a seven out of ten on the scale of creativity <laughs> and intention for making a statement without uh, unduly uh, destroying a treasured piece of work. So, so I digress. I totally interrupted what you're. Well, so. Actually, interestingly enough, so you uh, you go on to um, you go on to graduate school. You go on to making three thousand dollar tables. I loved my time in Providence, absolutely, and you know, very fortunate to have learned from Dunnigan and Roseanne and Eck Folan and that would be Alphonse Summerson and Alphonse Mattia. I just just a oh sorry, yeah, just put um, full names to these people. Even though right. uh, we do get accused of a little too much inside baseball. But anyways, these are all fairly famous. Well, not famous. These are well-known educators and makers in, right. in the furniture world. In the, especially in the bespoke furniture world. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, and actually, when I left, then I rented space in um, Smokestack, which is Smokestack Studios, which is in Fall River, which was started by Eck Follin, Charlie Swanson, Alphonse Mattia, Roseanne Summerson. And what they did is they kind of pooled all of their um, big power tools in a central room in this warehouse in Fall River, Mass. And then there were little spaces around the, around the end edge of that that you could rent. And that was great for me because I didn't have to buy a whole bunch of heavy equipment. Um, and at my studio space was right next to Eck Folan, who 
it was a professor, but also a mentor, also a friend. Um, and, you know, to have Alphonse there. So I, I got to kind of, I had graduate school and then I got to by osmosis kind of learn from these really accomplished and skilled and generous studio mates. Um, and, and thinkers too. I mean, um, yeah, some Fallen, of the, at Fallen has done some classic pieces. I mean, her wire piece, that wireframe furniture piece she did that was like all over American craft and, and the other things, I mean, pretty amazing. Very, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, she's on one side of me and then on the other side of the machine room was Charlie Swanson, who for a while when I was there was prototyping a chair for Starbucks. You know what I mean? So it was this real spectrum of from the really out there to the very kind of nuts and bolts. Um, not that Charlie Swanson can't do really out there stuff as well. And he does, but I just remember that being, I, I felt so fortunate to be in that studio in that moment and have both of those influences kind of in my life, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and just so that was, and that was just a great time. But then talking about who buys a $3,000 table, um, you know, Fall River Mass at that time, and I don't know how it is now as a town was in really, really bad economic shape. I mean, like, they were laying off EMT drivers and police officers, right? Like they were in really, as a municipality, just had no money at all. Um, and it's an old industrial town, isn't it? It's a, it's it is. A, yeah. It's, it, a, it's an ex mill town. Yeah. It's an um, ex mill town. And so I would get these, I would get a phone call from someone who lived in Fall River and say, can you build me a dining table? And, you know, can you build it for $300? And, and I would say no. And every time I did, I thought, but wait a minute, that's the, that's the person I should be building the table for. You know, is the person who can't afford, who can only afford a three hundred dollar table? That's where my energy needs to be going. Not, to, I mean, the rich people. There's plenty of people that will sell stuff to rich people. Uh, but then the rich people, you know, broke the country and, or at least the economy of the country, and uh, and I shut down my shop because no one was buying anything from me. And we're talking two thousand eight when the economy. Yeah, two thousand eight nine. It was. I was in that studio until August of nine, and uh, I got a. I had a temporary gig over here at SU setting up the the shops for the design school in my past i've set up big kind of industrial shops a few times uh just as a kind of a side job um because <clears throat> i like the figuring things out and you know i like to kind of imagine how the space will be used and it's always fun to play with someone <laughs> i think else's i money. applied for one of those jobs that you probably got instead of me <laughs> about that time <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah um i yeah i kind of talked my way into from that gig, I talked my way into a full-time gig here, but I wasn't teaching. I mean, I was, I was teaching a full load, but I was technically in kind of running the shops. And then I slowly was able to divest myself of all the admin stuff. And now I'm, um, I'm, I'm just teaching, which is great, which is where I, where I want to live. But I also happen to be living in a place where I set up the shop. So I have kind of all the cool tools that I want. Right. Right. And then as you do that, you also, um, I want to get to the core of this, the making musical instruments yeah. and a large focus of, of what you're doing in terms of making public art music and also Luthery, which uh, these are all fascinating skills to me. Rob and I are both musicians. I'm much more of a folk musician. I actually have built some instruments. I will say that I find Luthery does not tack into my skills as a maker. I don't really like fussy precision. Mm -hmm. uh, instruments yeah, sort of they're, they're demand They're very unforgiving. It. They don't function if you aren't really fussy. And that's sort of like our discussion about function is like, I can make the most conceptual piece of work imaginable, but I have a hard time viewing in terms of, I don't really care about function. I don't have a love-hate relationship with function. I'll throw function out the window in a heartbeat. But I really struggle with that when it comes to building instruments, because I have an expectation that it's going to sound good. Therefore, it must function. Therefore, I've completely given up making instruments. <laughs> so you had a lot of mistakes and a lot of trial and error that's led you to this intersection that you are, are at now. Well, I will say I have made a lot of guitar shaped objects. 
Yeah. And you really don't have to screw up very much to make something that is no longer a guitar. Uh, you know, I mean, you've got, sometimes you have very, very, very tight tolerances. Um, but you know, as, as all woodworkers kind of, I was very cowed by this whole building of instruments thing. And then my friend Tom Fay, who's here in town, who's a, a luthier, um, and a very, very skilled fiddle player. Uh, and his, you know, he's a trim carpenter by day, but he builds guitars on the side, these beautiful arch tops. And he said, you gotta, you gotta just build a guitar, man. Cause I was making, um, so I started out, I started out making instruments out of, uh, cigar boxes and frying pans and tin cans and broom handles. Cause I was trying to go from the $3,000 table to all the way, like how cheap, how inexpensively can I make something that will be, that can be used to make music that's discernible as music, right? Um, because every major faith tradition has one of two things, one of two components, every major, and sometimes both, eating together and making music together. Every major faith tradition, the history of humankind that we know of. It, it, it's almost a faith in and of itself, because, I mean, I've heard many people say that the central role of faith in most cultures is community, is that faith is a community yeah. builder, and therefore creating these sub-communities, co-op, housing, communes, uh, kibbutzes, yeah. these are all community builders, and a musical community or a theater community is also a, is also a community of people of better or worse like mine but uh yeah and 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 interestingly about theater and and musical communities uh the the like mind doesn't have to be complete groupthink right it can be okay we intersect here but not over here right like when i was you know like i might you know we both might like hardcore you might be straight edge and i might not be but we can both dig the minor threat show Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or I just went to a, a Comic-Con called Atomicon and there were book nerds and comic nerds and Star Wars nerds and Trekkies. And it's like a bunch of nerds coming together or D&D nerds or film yeah. nerds or horror, horror film nerds. It was amazing. But it was all like, yeah, we're all on our own avenues, but it's a collective consciousness of, of nerds. But there's an <laughs> intersection. Yeah. So so I was making these um Instruments and I actually started making cigar box instruments because uh, we had our first kid, and I know it was no longer possible when I had a very young child to say, "Okay, well, I'm going to go into the shop and spend six hours laying out and cutting a bunch of dovetails." Right? Like this is not this does not go well. Um, and so, but a, but an instrument, especially a cigar box instrument, is a whole bunch of very small things that are put together. So, kid goes down for a nap. I can come down and carve a bridge. Right. And come back, take care of the kid, kid, you know, whatever kid goes on a play date, I can come down and start to rough out the neck. So that got me into those. And then finally, Tom Faye said, you need to make a real, real instrument. I said, I don't know, man, I I think it's too hard. And he said, listen, it's a carved stick in a box. What is the line between a real instrument and not a real instrument? Because it is as long as you're capable of making music on it. Now, you might not play this in, you know, in a symphony, but, you know, uh, a washtub bass is an instrument. I, I totally agree with that. In my mind, um, I was, the, for me, the line was, is this something that is recognizable as a constructed musical object, as opposed to something that is read primarily as parts that have been assembled? Does that make sense? So the, so the frying pan banjo, uh, that I'm going to be, I'm actually dusting off and playing again next month reads as a, as, as an assemblage. It reads as a a pie tin and a brownie tin and a stick through them, right? Whereas a guitar that looks like a guitar reads as an object by itself. And so that's, that's where I was making that distinction. And that was when, and that was when Tommy Faye just said, Look, do it. Just do it. Stop being a jerk. Just do it. And I did. And I, and, um, the first, the first one I built was how I learned how important it is, you know, where the frets are and where the bridge is. That's all very important. Uh, and so that was a, there's a lot of learning involved. But anyway, I tell my students, the first time you do anything is poorly done, painful and slow. And so that became very expensive kindling. Uh, and then I kind of made a couple more and started, you know, so now I've gotten to where I can, 
I can make something that the intonation is right, uh, the sound is interesting, um, and it's and it's playable and recognizable as a discrete, as a complete object. Uh, and I haven't made a lot of the kind of assembled stuff. You know, I do, I still do workshops sometimes. I have this thing that I make, it's called a canjo. That's literally a can and a broom handle, one guitar tuner and four screws. And that's the whole thing. Um, it was fun seeing you put that together during your TED talk, like within 18 minutes, you're talking and putting it together and talking. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I love those things, man. And I used to, man, I used to make so much money with those because people are like, what the heck are you even playing there? And, uh, like you go to, you sit at Columbus Circle train station in New York City with that thing and money just flows in hand over fist because people can't believe that you're even doing anything with that. Right. Um, and it's even it's even cooler wow. if you play it with it as a slide with a pocket knife, because that looks more mm-hmm. badass. You know, it's like, what are you doing? What <laughs> is that thing? Yeah. And uh, so I love this and I build those with people all over. Um, and even sometimes when I do a class at Aramon or something. The first night, you know, now the classes start Sunday night. Sometimes we'll just build canjos Sunday night as a way into like, okay, let's get all of the agenda about what we're going to make out of our lives and throw this thing together. And it'll be kind of a weird way. But, you know, people talk to each other better when their hands are busy. So it kind of gives them something to do. So, so that's where I started out. And I made probably a hundred instruments that were cigar boxy baking tin, tobacco tin stuff. And I just kind of kept sneaking closer and closer to being a guitar. And then Tommy embarrassed me into building a guitar. And so that's what I've been doing. I don't build as many guitars as I build. I keep looking over here. I realize I'm looking over here because I'm looking at the stack of unassembled parts. You don't know that because the camera's not pointed that way. But when I'm pointing over here, there's a bunch of not yet guitars over there. Um, uh, I've been building more ukes than guitars just because I need less material to do it. But almost all of my guitars I build out of broken pianos. So going back to this cradle to cradle, which is that's not quite cradle to cradle. That's really more like reuse and salvage than it is true cradle to cradle thinking. But um, and where are all the broken pianos coming from? I'm just curious. Oh, man, I bet if you looked on Facebook Marketplace right now for where you live, I bet you there'd be a half a dozen of them that are free if you'll come take them away. I'll bet you a dollar. There are, there are four right now on Facebook Marketplace that are within a five mile radius of where I sit. We have in this household a very strict one in, one out policy on broken pianos though. So I'm not, <laughs> I haven't gone to get those yet. The thing about salvage is everything becomes provisional, right? So you, you, you only have the wood that came out of that piano. And so now you've got to be really careful about what you do with it. And it becomes a real kind of like a, measure twice, measure three times, cut one time kind of thing, because you don't have, you know, you, you can't get more of that. But it also means that the primary woods that I work in are old growth poplar and chestnut, because that's a lot of what the pianos in the early 20th century made out of. And so I actually, I very rarely work in cherry or walnut or, you know, mahogany. Like, I don't, I don't know what any of that stuff is, because I'm working all my, all my time is spent working in chestnut. And, and this like really amazing Early 20th century pianos were made out of the, you know, cause it was all veneered. So it was all these panels laid up out of poplar, but this poplar is like rock hard. I mean, it's like, it's harder than maple. It's crazy. And the growth rings, like, you know, these really tight little growth rings. Um, and then of course, all the spruce tops are spruce from pianos. So a lot of them have been making music for a hundred years already. Right. Um, so they don't have to, like when you build a piano, when you build a, a guitar, from scratch, it takes a few years for the everything, the tensions to kind of all yeah. figure themselves the, out. The crispness to kind of come out of it. Yeah, because that wood yeah. still thinks it's a tree, right? The wood I'm working with thinks it's a piano. So it's really <laughs> kind of used to what it's like, oh, yeah, we're making sound. I know how to do well, that. Well, the other interesting thing is that the American chestnut pretty much has disappeared. These are, I wouldn't say they're exotics, but they're incredibly rare. I mean, the American chestnut... I mean, there might be a handful of ornamental trees, but those pianos were made at a time when the American chestnut was plentiful. And now yeah. it is yet another disappearing thing on the uh, on the worldwide landscape. Yeah, thanks specifically to human, inter- uh, human yeah, involvement. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've done this. We did this. Uh, but at one time, it was about, about 75% of domestic hardwood use in America was chestnut. Right. I mean, we're talking about that... Wow. That much, 
that sector of the lumber uh, business, that that huge percentage, and it went to zero in ten years. Right, because of because of chestnut blight, and now the very similar thing is happening to the American ash tree, which probably in another ten years yeah. will mm-hmm. be completely gone. Yeah, I was just listening to a, um, I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about how the folks who make Louisville sluggers are buying up all the ash they can because all yeah. the ash they use comes from northern Pennsylvania, southern New York. And mm-hmm. and they're reading the writing on the wall, and they're like, "We're just going to buy as many ba- baseball bat blanks as we can because we know that that's going to disappear." Yeah, I mean, I have a, I mean, not to digress, but I have a good friend who's got an, an ash tree on, on his property, a beautiful, huge old ash tree, but it's so diseased. And this is Central North Carolina. I mean, this this started on the West Coast and has worked its way all the way across. I mean, it's so diseased; it's just going to have to be cut down. Yeah, and here anyway. They won't let you make lumber out of a out of a tree that's been infected. They force you it, legally by law. You either have to burn it or chip it into pieces smaller than an inch in any direction. Yeah. So, I, a friend of mine has some ash trees on his land that have not yet been infected, and uh, we're actually very seriously talking about felling and lumbering them just so that we've got them. Right. You know, because you, we legally can't lumber. This our our county took took down 20,000 ash trees last year, last calendar year alone. That's sort of a... Now, a lot of those oh were gosh. little. A lot of those were, you yeah. know, swamp trees. But, um, man, if you have a Fender Strat made out of swamp ash, yeah. those are going to be made out of something very different. I, I didn't mean to digress too much, but... that it's That's really important to me because what we're talking about is the... Is the... Like, we have been setting ourselves up for this for generations, right? We've been doing this on purpose to ourselves for generations. And we're now starting to reap the benefit with climate change. We're starting to, you know, this is the bed we've made. And, and it's you- this fall that we're a- acting surprised that it's happening. And it's like, wait a second. No, no, no. We were, we were orchestrating the thing the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. We've been, we have been doing this on purpose. And, you know, all of the, um, you know, all of these, Bluegrass and country songs about loving the mountains you're in and about how they're changing. That's all part of this. All of the punk rock songs cr- screaming against capitalism. That's all part of this too, man. You know, I mean, we are not islands and, and the, our endeavors are not disassociated from each other. It's all hooked together in the great big thing that is the Anthropocene era. And, uh, and you know, we're old, right? Like we, we're not going to have to deal with this too much longer, but my kids sure are. You know, and the people that I'm teaching sure are like. So uh, let's pick up the story again, Zeke. And so you were encouraged by your friend to actually build a real guitar. Um, where do you go from there? What I love about making things that I call functional uh, is that once the thing is made, it's not done. Right. And that's what I that's especially what I love about musical instruments is that it is all the things that I love. I can do it from a sustainability place, certainly from a materials place, certainly from a methods place. But at the end of the day, I've made a thing that isn't finished until somebody is playing it with other people or for other people, right? We don't buy guitars. Well, some of us buy guitars that hang on the wall. Most of us buy an instrument. A lot, a lot of people do, unfortunately. Actually, a lot of people do. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, well, and now, so now I'm in a place, again, in my household, the rule is um, I can have any guitar in the world that I want. No holds barred. Any instrument you want is fine as long as you build it. So I actually haven't bought a guitar in more than a, probably a couple of decades at this point because this I mean, is, that's a great rule. <laughs> it's it's worked out okay because, yeah, well, right. Like I wanted a resonator guitar, so I bought a resonator kit and now I have a resonator guitar. I wanted a Washburn made these bell-shaped guitars in the 30s. I thought, oh, that's cool. I wonder what that's like to play. Fine. So now I have one of those, right? Like I can have anything I want. I just have to build it. Um, and so so I, what I love about these instruments is that I build them, I get them to people, they go out into the world and most people are using them to build community around themselves. And so when whatever that means, right? That could be an aunt playing it for their niece. That's build, that's enforcing a family community. It can be, I've got a good friend here who's an Episcopalian uh, preacher. We kind of, we have a lot of fun with each other. And, uh, 
and she's got one and she uses it in an ecclesiastical way, right? Uh, I've got, you know, I have a bunch that I built. I, I ran this, I started this when I moved here. I didn't have anyone to play music with and I hate not having people to play music with. So I started this all ukulele jam session. Um, called Siri Uke. It's a bi-weekly, anti-virtuosic, come one, come all, mostly ukulele-based jam session. And, uh, and so I have a bunch that we just are in a suitcase. And if someone shows up without a ukulele, they, we put it in their hand and they play that. So, um, so I love that these, these things that I make, these objects that I make only actually are fulfilled when another person is directly physically interacting with it. You know, um, there's a great, you brought up Anya Frank has a great Anya Franco lyric, six strings that sing and word and wood that hums against my hip bone. And I think that's a really great way to describe a stringed instrument, acoustic stringed instrument. Um, cause you feel it, you hear it, you feel it, it, it vibrates against your body. It, it takes both of your hands, takes your ears. It takes real concentration, uh, intention, thoughtfulness, right? All of these things to play music on these things. So that's, that's why they've cr- really captured my imagination. I think is that, um, they can be an object of contemplation. They certainly are functional, but they really live best when the function is art making and community building. I like just the idea of your energy and your desire to share these instruments is part of your making experience Uh, just as much as like the techniques to make it. Yeah. It comes back to community building for me. It all comes back to, I, I think the thing that scares me the most about the digital interface is that I am experiencing, and I may, and maybe I'm alone in this, but I am experiencing an erosion of physical interaction in the same space. I keep quoting Anna Franco because she's one of my favorite songwriters, but uh, she said people used to make records as in a record and of an event, the event of people making music in a room, right? This idea that we're, we share a space, we're sharing oxygen, we're sharing this intention around sound, noise making, music making, um, and... And that to me, you know, that's where there's a lot of power. That's where there's a lot of, you say energy, I think energy is a good word, but, but that energy can lead to power, power to make change. And, um, and so, so, yeah, so for me, this is all, this all comes back to that activism and it comes back to that teaching and that learning and that being together and, and the way that we, the way that at the end of the day, what matters is who who we are, the choices we make, and the people in our lives. In 150 years, there won't be anybody alive who knew us when we were alive. So let's do everything we can with the time we've got right now and the people that we can be in a room with. And for me, that's making music. For other people, that's cooking. You know, for some people, that's dancing. For some people, that's doing other stuff. For me, that's that's music making. And that seems the perfect place to wrap things up with our discussion with uh, Zeke Leonard. So as always... Uh... Thank you, Zeke. And why make? Why make? What else would you do? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon patreon.com forward slash why make podcast you can also find us on instagram and twitter at at why make pod this episode is recorded on squadcast and edited by us on audacity thanks for listening